How about that? That's it? Good afternoon. <laughs> At least you can hear me. Just as we come to God's word, let's just uh, take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your word now, I ask, Lord, that you will focus our hearts and focus our minds on you and your word. Father, I pray that you will provide us with food to eat and nourishment to our souls. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's probably not escaped your attention that today is September the 11th. Um, and I guess forever in, in our lifetime, in my generation for sure, uh, September, that, that date will be associated with death. And today, uh, as well with the Queen's cortege, as it moved from Balmoral down to Edinburgh, and the events of this week again, we are confronted with the reality of death. And, and often when we are confronted with that reality of death, it raises questions in our mind about some ultimate things. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? And, and many people over the years have, have pondered these things and written about these things. And uh, the late Roger Scruton uh, wrote this just a couple of years ago, just before his death. He said this, the main point, it seems to me, is to maintain a life of active risk and affection, remembering always that the value of life does not consist in its length, but its depth. There's something more to life than the number of years that, the, that God gives us. We all recognize and yearn for a purpose and a meaning in life. And, and today, it's fitting, I think, today, um, to turn our attention to God's word, and particularly this passage that, we, that Mike's read for us, because this speaks to something more than the days of our life. It speaks to what is it that can satisfy our hunger for purpose and for meaning. And if we can find that, how can we sustain it? That's the questions in front of us this afternoon. It's quite a long passage, and I've broken it down into to four headings, maybe just to help uh, provide a bit of structure. The first heading I have is bread that doesn't last. In the first part of the passage that we just read in, in John 6, it's probably helpful to have your Bible open in front of you. Um, what we see is the the crowd are waking up the morning after the feeding of the 5,000. They're still on the, the shores of Galilee, of the Sea of Galilee, and they recognize that yesterday there was a single boat on the shore, and it's gone. They'd seen the disciples get into that boat, and they knew that Jesus hadn't gone with them. But in the morning when they woke up, they realized that Jesus wasn't to be found anywhere. And this caused some some puzzlement and a few boats arrived from Tiberias, it says, and the crowd jumped in the boats, headed across the lake looking for Jesus. And eventually they come to Capernaum and they find Jesus. And later we're told that actually Jesus was in the synagogue. At some point 
he has moved into the synagogue in Capernaum. And when they find Jesus, the question that they ask him is, Rabbi, when did you come here? And I think the question they were really asking was, Rabbi, how did you get here? How did you get here? And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't answer their question. Because as so often is the way with Jesus, Jesus doesn't deal with the superficial. He doesn't deal with the stuff that's on the surface. Jesus uses the opportunity to go much, much deeper. And in fact, his response to the crowd is a direct challenge to the motivation for seeking him out. If you look at verse 26, Jesus answered them, he said this, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, that was the breaking, that was the the kind of the multiplication of the, the loaves and the fish, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. All of these people had been fed at the hands of Jesus the day before from a little boy's packed lunch. Five loaves was taken by Jesus and it was turned into more than enough to feed 5,000 men, let alone the women and children that were on the shores of Galilee. These people could see the signs, but they couldn't see the meaning of the signs. And Jesus here cuts straight to the heart of their priorities. And, and what he says to them, basically, accuses them of, is you're only looking for me because you got full bellies. And if you turn that question around, I guess what, he, what Jesus is asking is, what are you really living for? Are you just living for bread that doesn't last? Are you just living for every day to put food on the table? And that's the natural state of life as we know it. The very first mention of bread in the Bible is back in Genesis chapter three. After Adam and Eve had fallen in the garden and fallen into sin, God confronts Adam and Eve and the serpent And this is what God has to say to Adam in verses 17 to verse 19 of Genesis chapter 3. This is what God says. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. These past few days, we've all been confronted with the, the reality of the curse that God placed on mankind after the fall. The wages of sin is death. God does bring an end to all of our physical lives on earth because of sin, and there's no escape. And death doesn't respect position or status or wealth, whatever your standing is, whether you're a a king or a queen, or somebody who's homeless without a family, death comes to every one of us. And before we get to that point, 
It's interesting that God says to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. It's hard work to put food on the table. And the question is, where can we find freedom if freedom can be found from this curse of work and from death? And Jesus gives us the answer to that. In verse 27, Jesus goes on to say, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father will set his seal. Jesus speaks here of a promise of food that doesn't perish, that doesn't go off, that doesn't go stale, but food that lasts and endures even to eternity. Jesus gives us a promise, as Mike was talking about, the ability to live an eternal, resurrected life. And that life is authenticated with the royal seal of the Father. It is possible to live a life that has true purpose and true meaning and lasting meaning. But where does that food come from? We go on to find that in the next part of of entitled this bread from heaven, this promise of a bread that lasts forever grabs the attention of the crowd. And to be fair to them, they're probably still thinking in terms of physical bread. They're still maybe thinking, imagining of God or Jesus giving them bread day after day after day for the rest of their lives. And I think in that, it provokes a question that they then have as a follow-up because this connection between work and food is so deeply ingrained in our psyches that the people immediately say, well, what must we be doing to do the works of God? There's no such thing as a free lunch is essentially what they're saying. How come, what do we have to do to earn this bread that lasts forever? And if we look at how Jesus answers this question in verse 29, I want you to notice two things in his reply. I want you to notice how he responds to what is the food and what is the work that's actually required. In verse 29, Jesus responds in this way. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the food that Jesus points to that endures forever is none other than himself, whom God has sent. And the connection between work and receiving food is broken and replaced with belief. This statement reverses the curse of Genesis chapter 3. The connection between life and working to sustain life is broken by Jesus. And all that God requires of us is to believe in his son. No work, no effort, just belief. To simply believe that this Jesus who we've been singing about and and who we've been reading about in the Gospel of John is truly the son of God that he was sent into this world to lay down his life to secure 
yours and my eternal life and eternal security. Because of this deep grained notion within ourselves that there is no such thing as a free lunch, this is a really difficult thing for us to accept because every single one of us is a legalist at heart. We all believe in cause and effect. We instinctively believe that nothing's for free. And if something's offered that's for free, well, that must be too good to be true. If we want something, we need to earn it. And not only do we apply that to our physical life, but we also, when we come to eternal things, we also apply that same feeling and same thought that we need to do something to earn this. And that's why the people ask, what do we have to do to get hold of this food which lasts forever? And because this is difficult for the crowd to accept and it's difficult for us to accept, the crowd listening to Jesus in the synagogue wanted more evidence that they could actually trust Jesus with what he's saying here. Why should we believe? In verse 30, it says, show us a sign. And that's, you know, if you think about it, that's quite a statement. These people, the day before, had witnessed a miracle. They had been given bread, enough to eat, and even more left over from five loaves and two fish. And in verse 14 of John 6, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So they did recognize that something was unique about what they were witnessing. So you might ask, well, how can witnesses of this miracle still be looking for a sign? And there's maybe a clue to this from Mark's account of feeding of the 5,000. In, Mark, in Mark's version of the, of, uh, of the feeding of the 5,000, in verse 52 of chapter 6 of Mark, it says this about Jesus' disciples. So this isn't just a crowd. This is Jesus' disciples. And this is after... The, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, it's also after the miracle of Jesus walking on the water and getting into the boat with them. This is what it says about the disciples' reaction to that. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. This astonishment of what they witnessed, because it didn't fit within any category that they could identify with, it was so far beyond their knowledge or experience, it hardened their hearts. It was just too much to deal with. How on earth do you try and make sense of something that you don't understand? As we move on in, in, uh, back to John in, in, in chapter 6, you can see the people wrestling with these things in their mind. And often, if we're confronted with something that's new, a new experience, the way we try and make sense of that is to, to look back and refer back to, is there something else similar to this that I can identify with that might help me? And 
what the people do is they actually look back at their history. In verse 31 it says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. This witnessing of a miracle of feeding the 5,000 of bread that is multiplied reminds them of what happened to the Israelite nation when they left Egypt and were in the desert. Having just escaped across the Red Sea, the people of Israel found themselves in the desert with no food to eat. And if you read the account in, in Exodus chapter 16, you'll find that they were complaining bitterly about this to Moses. Even though they'd been released from captivity, released from slavery, what they were concerned about was where we're going to get food to eat in this desert, in this wilderness. And then in Exodus 16 verse 4, God said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And so for the next 40 years, without fail, every single day, God provided the people of Israel with bread from heaven. They didn't have to work for it. It was a gift from God. Jesus picks up on this. He takes this hint of understanding and he uses it to explain how he himself is just like that manna. He is the true bread from heaven given by God the Father to bring life, not just to the Jewish people, but to the whole world. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them, you don't need to look for any more signs. Look no further than me, who's sitting in front of you in the synagogue, teaching you. After all, he's just multiplied five loaves of bread into enough to feed more than 5,000, and he's just transported himself across a lake without the need for a boat. But even this, they still can't understand. And if you look at their reaction to what Jesus says about being the bread of God that comes down from heaven, they said to them, Sir, give us this bread always. So Jesus, even with the crowd's lack of understanding, because they still find it impossible to look beyond the mundane. Jesus, fortunately, doesn't give up. He doesn't get frustrated with them. He doesn't rebuke them. He goes on to expand even further what it means to be the bread from heaven. And at this point, Jesus becomes much more explicit. In verse 35, And repeated in verse 48, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. This bread from heaven, this bread which endures to eternal life, is none other than himself. He makes that explicit. In verses 35 to 51, Jesus says some things that we find quite difficult to take on board. And as we look at these verses, I want to consider three things. First, they want to consider what are the results of coming to Jesus, the bread of life. 
Secondly, how are the results of this bread guaranteed? And thirdly, how can we receive this bread? So what are the results of coming to Jesus? What are the results of eating and taking this bread? Bread of life, excuse me. Firstly, Jesus says in verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Our hunger and our thirst will be fully satisfied. That's what happens when we come to Jesus and believe in him. We all know what it is to experience physical hunger and thirst, but whether we care to admit it or not, we're also aware of a deep longing to be satisfied in our souls. C.S. Lewis speaks of those moments, uh, those fleeting moments in life when we catch a glimpse of something joyous and beyond ourselves. An experience perhaps when we listen to a song for the first time. And what we try and do with that is find a repeat of that same experience. So what we do is we put the song on, we listen to it over and over and over again. But with each listening, that sensation wanes. In the attempt to repeat the experience, we miss out on the joy. And that's how addiction works. That first hit, there's nothing quite like it. That hole that we're trying to fill, that void that we're trying to fill, that God-shaped hole in the center of our lives, however we want to fill that or try to fill that, everything falls short. And that means that in order to get the same hit again, we have to consume more and more and become even more addicted, whether it's the pursuit of health, whether it's the pursuit of wealth, comfort, power, fame, whatever it is that you seek after, none of those things can fill the hole. Only Jesus, the bread of life, is sufficient to take away that hunger and that thirst. And he doesn't just do it momentarily, he does it forever. And that leads to the second result. The second result is that this Satisfaction is guaranteed for eternity. Jesus says in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And again in verse 51, he says, If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The Israelites, they ate bread from, the, from heaven in the wilderness, but they all died in the end. The bread ran out. Jesus is the living bread. He is the eternal Son of God. He will never run out. He is life itself. And so when we eat his bread, when we eat and partake in his life, we enter into eternal life. This is exactly the same as the new birth that Jesus explained to Nicodemus. These are the living waters that Jesus talk, talked about to the Sumerian woman at the well. This eternal life is birthed in us on this side of eternity, but will guarantee our future resurrection and life for more, forevermore in God's presence. It starts now and it lasts forever. How are these results guaranteed? In short, because it's God's will 
Verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The results of coming to Jesus are guaranteed because it's the Father's will. That may seem like a circular argument, but we need to stand back and look at the full picture that's revealed in the whole of Scripture about what the Bible says about God's purpose and God's will. In Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, it says this about, this is God speaking. He says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is sent by the Father from heaven. And it's God's will that whoever comes to Jesus will never be cast out. What a comfort. Even after we put our trust in Jesus, every single one of us feels to live up to his standards, and we do it repeatedly. But he's faithful to his words. He will forgive us time and time again when we, when we repent because he loves us. Are you missing out on the assurance of his enduring love because you're still stuck in the trap of legalistic thinking? Thinking that your position in Christ depends on what you do, on your performance. That's not how it works. Listen to what Jesus says again. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So how can we receive this bread? We've already seen that Jesus says in this passage that we, we don't receive this bread by earning it. We can't earn it. And, re, and Jesus repeatedly talks about believing in him or coming to him. Verse 40, it says, whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. We receive this bread simply by believing in Jesus, believing he is the Son of God, believing he died on the cross to take away our sin and absorb God's wrath on our behalf believing that he rose on the third day, believing he ascended to heaven and one day he will return. We naturally stumble over this because it just doesn't seem right. We feel that we need to work to earn this. But how do you believe? The faith that you and I need to believe in Jesus Christ is a gift. It's a gift of God. That's what Jesus says that's why Jesus says in verse 36, you've seen me and yet do not believe. The crowd haven't been able to see who Jesus is because that gift of faith had not yet been given to them. The crowd in Capernaum could only see Jesus as Mary and Joseph's son, a carpenter. They were unable to see Jesus as the son of God sent from heaven. 
None of us can see who Jesus is unless our eyes are fully opened by God. Dead men and women can't see. I know that this isn't an easy message to preach or listen to because we instinctively don't like it. Because the implication of that statement is this. There is absolutely nothing I can do to save myself. I am totally and utterly dependent on God for my salvation. But this is what the Bible teaches and not just here in John's Gospel. In verse 44, Jesus says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word used for draw in that, the Greek word in that, uh, in that statement draw, uh, for draw is the same word that's used when you're hauling in a net of fish. I remember clearly in the night that I became a Christian. It was following a children's meeting in Belfast. I'd heard the gospel countless, of ta- countless times in my life up to that evening. I can't even remember what was said. I'm probably sure that Fuzzy Felt or Flannel Graph played a part in that. But all of a sudden, I felt God pulling me towards him. I was compelled. I was drawn. There was nothing I could do about that. I had to respond. My heart was racing. My pulse was quickened. And I know that it's not like that for everyone. That for some, it's more of a gradual journey. But God does draw us in. And he does that because it's all an act of grace. There is no way of earning this. And I think it's only as you go on in your Christian life, as I've matured in my faith that I've come to understand more fully the magnitude of the gulf that exists, that existed between me and God. There's no way that my sinful self could ever, ever live up to the standards set by a holy God. But to realize that he bridged the gap is a constant source of wonder and an increasing source of amazement and an increasing cause of humility and joy and thankfulness. When was the last time you stopped to thank God for the grace that he's shown to you in your life? You might ask, how can anyone then be sure that they've been drawn to Jesus? Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. Faith is not an, abstra- faith is not an abstraction. It is personal trust in Jesus Christ. The least and weakest faith receives the same strong Christ. He saves completely those who come to God by him. Personal trust in Jesus, no matter how weak, is sufficient because it doesn't, because it doesn't depend on how strong your grip is on him. It depends on how strong his grip is on you and he will never, ever leave you go. He is mighty to save So having looked at the bread that doesn't last, having looked at bread from heaven, and having looked at the bread of life, the last part we need to consider is what do you do with bread? The only reason bread exists 
is for us to eat it. Jesus didn't choose this metaphor to describe himself as the bread of life by accident. And he finishes this discourse in verses 53 to 58 by talking about what it looks like to eat this bread of life. And when you read the words, it does get a bit weird, but it's a metaphor. He finishes talking about eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood in order to sustain eternal life. Christians can easily fall into the trap of thinking that belief in Jesus Christ is like purchasing a ticket and securing a seat on the train to heaven. It's a one-time deal, and it doesn't require any more of us until we hand in the ticket to the conductor when we take our final breath. Or to use the bread metaphor, is like taking a loaf of bread home from the supermarket and leaving it in the bread bin untouched. We may not actually say this out loud, but often our actions can reveal it. And in the remainder of this passage, Jesus directly, directly challenges this view of the Christian life. He extends the bread metaphor even further into strikingly uncomfortable territory. I'm just going to read what he says in verses 53 to 58 again, uh, just to, to remind us. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Those verses aren't very easy to listen to, and they're not very easy to understand. They're hard. So hard, in fact, that in the next section of John 6, you'll find that people took offense at what Jesus said and turned their backs on him. So what is Jesus getting at here when he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? This is like two sides of the same coin. There are two aspects of what it means to be alive in Christ. On the one side is eternal life, the bread of life given to us by God through faith, that's eating the flesh. And on the other side of the coin is dying to ourselves, partaking in Christ's suffering, drinking the blood. When we eat or drink, what we eat or drink becomes a part of us. The calcium from the milk builds our bones. The protein from the meat builds our muscles. The glucose from the sugars gives our cells energy and helps our brains function. Water enables our bodies to transport nutrients and get rid of the waste. And just like we need physical food to stay alive, we need spiritual food to sustain our eternal life in Christ. This is how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, now God designed the human machine to run on himself. 
He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. If our faith in Christ is to remain alive, it needs to be regularly fed. We need to return again and again and again and again to Jesus. It's a daily thing to feed on his strength. And if you remember what Jesus said when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Jesus was hungry and the devil came to him and said, then why don't you make these stones into loaves of bread? And Jesus replied by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, he said, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by the every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God's word is this book. Jesus is the word made flesh. And John in Revelation 10, you find there, you read there that an angel hands John a little book, a little scroll, and he says to John, take it and eat it. There's a sense in which we, we know what it is to devour books. The Bible needs to be devoured. The Bible needs to be eaten, it needs to be read, it needs to be taken into us to build us. This is our food. At the Queen's coronation in 1953, she was presented with the Bible by the moderator of the Church of Scotland. And in the handing over the Bible, it was accompanied by these words by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Our gracious Queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. We need to eat every day and find ourselves consuming God's word for it to become a part of us. And just as bread is frequently associated with life in the Bible, blood is most often associated with death. And we all know that life doesn't consist of happiness and joy alone. Life is also marked by painful experiences. It's marked by grief, sadness, times of suffering. And there's a sense in which it's not possible to enter into the fullness of a relationship with someone unless you not only share in the joyous times, but you're present with them in the deepest and darkest valleys of life when you share in their suffering. In verse 51 of John 6, Jesus talks about giving up his life for the world. When we sit around the Lord's table as we did last week, and we take the bread and we drink of the cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death. We remind ourselves that not only does Jesus live, but as a man, he also suffered and he died. And if we're to be fully alive in Christ, it means that we must also participate in his sufferings. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.5 says this, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Jesus never promises an easy life as a Christian. What he promises is life to the full. The only way to experience that life to the full is to go all in, to surrender everything, to experience the highs and the lows in relationship with him, 
trusting in him all of the way in the full assurance and knowledge that someday he will bring us safely through death into eternal life in his presence. So Jesus is the bread of life. Come to him, satisfy your hunger, quench your thirst. You don't have to work for this bread, just believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you that Jesus is the bread of life. Father, we pray, Lord, that you will sustain us with your food, nourish us and keep us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.